This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. And there was lots to discuss right at the start of the week. A court challenge to the law mandating hospitals to charge patients who won't go to nursing homes $400 a day, the impending retirement of one in five family doctors within the next five years, and Ontario's chief medical officer, Dr. Kieran Moore, for not taking his own indoor masking advice just days after strongly recommending we all do so. Joining Libby to discuss, the weekly Zoomer Squad, Peter Muggridge, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, chief membership officer of CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's chief operating officer and chief policy officer. Well, it just underlines the fact that uh, the message we've been getting, the public's been getting, has been really confusing right since the beginning of, of COVID. And uh, uh, Dr. Moore is, is just uh, re-repeating that kind of uh, uh, confusion. Uh, I, I deal with uh, politicians and public figures all the time who often, even in a meeting where uh, were distant that a picture has been taken afterwards they put on their mask because they understand what can happen if these if these photos go public obviously uh, dr moore didn't think ahead enough of this and it's a, a very sad indication that uh, we're not being clear on the message we're trying to get to the public that uh, in many cases it is a good idea to wear a mask whether it's mandated or not. The, the, um, the other thing is there, there isn't a mask mandate. It, it, he did say it was recommended, but it's not a mandate. So um, until we have a mandate, you know, um, the, the recommendation is useless, right? And, and his actions just show how useless the recommendation is, <laughs> uh, you know, rather than a mandate. And, and there isn't a political will for a mandate right now. So it just sort of, it, it just sort of highlights the ridiculousness of this, of this, uh, this whole masking thing, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it shows people don't take it serious. Some people don't take it seriously. Some people, including in the people issuing, it. yeah, including. So, so again, it's it's more uh, sort of uh, you know ridiculousness about this whole thing, and these gotcha moments just make everyone crazy. They don't really help anyone, and uh, you know either make a mandate, everyone wears a mask, or no mandate, and people can choose to wear a mask. Moving right along, this charter challenge to Bill Seven, David, you have a lot to say about it. Well, I think that, and I'm not a lawyer. But the problem is that the language in the bill itself directly contradicts the premise of this challenge. The bill specifically says they may research without your consent. They may check around and see if there are other nursing homes that could take you without your consent. But they must eventually put it to you as the patient and or patient and family, and you don't have to consent. And they are specifically forbidden in, the, in writing from coercing you or using force to move you. They cannot make you go where you don't want to go. So the, But they can charge you 400 bucks a day. The charge of $400 a day, the way it's positioned here, 
is in the regulations is the cost that the hospital uh, incurs in keeping you in the, that bed. And I think that if we're going to discuss this thoroughly, we got to recognize that the CMA in a, in a report a couple of years ago said that there's, look, there's 21,000 acute care beds. There's 3,900 average daily people waiting to get out. And the majority are seniors. So let's say it's 3,000 seniors a day. Who are in long, who are in acute care beds, who are waiting for long-term care. If we move them from those beds, according to a CMA report of a few years ago, that would free up $2.3 billion a year for the healthcare system. So they're in a, in a place they shouldn't be that's medically dangerous, uh, an acute care hospital. They're waiting for a long-term care bed. They don't want to move. The law, they can't be moved more than 75 kilometers in southern Ontario, more than 150 in northern Ontario, with their consent. So that's an awful lot of um, trying your best to accommodate these things. And it's presented as uh, a fine for not moving. It's presented as being forced to move. If they are going to be coerced, and I think, Libby, it's reasonable to say, yeah, I don't care what it says in the bill, but in real life, they are going to coerce them. That's when you bring the lawsuit. I think doing it anticipatory like this is a very uh, Hail Mary pass, frankly. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer of CARP. Bill Van Gorder, CARP's Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer, as well as Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, Fightback's weekly Zoomer Squad. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. The following day, Fight Back's Recovering Politicians panel weighed in. Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader Gerard Kennedy, a former Ontario Liberal MPP, and Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Federal Conservatives. It's a very tough situation when people are not getting their first choice in terms of where they would like their loved one to be. There's no question about it. And I've actually received phone calls and notes from people who have been put in that situation, um, Libby, and they're not happy about it. And, and I and I understand it. So it makes sense to me that the charter challenge would be filed, and I think it's going to go through its due process as it should. You know, I can't predict what will end up happening. The judge is going to make the decision. But I would say this is that at the very basis of the Constitution is that you do have your rights and you do have your freedoms. But there can be reasonable limits put on these rights and freedoms as long as they're justifiable in a free and democratic society. So what it comes down to is, is the government, if this is a right that people have to have their first choice in long-term care, is this a right that can be curtailed by the government as a result of trying to get a balance? And the balance that the government will say they're trying to seek is to free up beds for people who are waiting for them that are more appropriate for the people waiting than they are for the people who are in the beds as they await for long-term care. It'll be an interesting argument. It's going to keep the issue alive. It's a good public policy discussion to have. But it does point up to the big problem, which is the system just simply doesn't have enough beds, and it's just going to get worse instead of better. Gerard Kennedy, uh, one of the things people are saying about it is that it's really ageist and uh, this crisis uh, is trying to be solved on the backs of vulnerable older people. Well, I think there's some there's some basis for that concern. I think what you've got is uh, still a 1960s Medicare system that really was based on a time when people had a lot of younger members of the family and you don't have in Ontario at least, any more chronic care beds in the system. So you don't have anything in between. 
that is still part of official Medicare. And so this is, you know, when once you're outside of that system, there's a vast drop-off in terms of the resources that could be available uh, to ameliorate situations. And our acute care hospitals are, are not set up to handle that transition. And so I think that's, that's what the court case would be interesting for ameliorating, is what really should be in Medicare for it to be a real, real working system, one that people can depend on in all kinds of situations. Howard Hampton, uh, you're one of our uh, lawyers. What do you think about this court challenge? Well, first of all, um, the facts that are brought before a court will be very important. So I, I think where you'll get into an interesting situation is in rural Ontario or northern Ontario, where this has factually happened. And, you know, you, you might say, well, that can't be true. No, this, in rural Ontario and northern Ontario, this kind of thing happens quite frequently. So if, if that's the factual basis that goes to a court, and the government tries to argue, oh, well, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is reasonably, this is reasonable and it's reasonably necessary in a free and democratic society. I think on the factual basis, the government will be in all kinds of trouble. And I think in the conservative base in rural and small town Ontario, this is really going to start to create a firestorm. The media cannot ignore something like this when it uh, starts to, uh, you know, when you have perhaps five or six cases or where they're all joined together. So I, I think, you know, down, down the road, this is going to create uh, a real problem. It's, it's long overdue. You see, you go into these facilities, and I've gone into them, and you see what's happening. Um, and you see people who are there, and they hardly ever see a loved one for weeks and weeks, sometimes months. And, and you say to yourself, this is, this, this is going on and is justified in a free and democratic society. Fightback's Recovering Politicians panel, Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader, Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the Federal Conservatives, as well as Gerard Kennedy, a former Ontario Liberal MPP. You're listening to the best of Fightback. I'm Bob Compsick. Coming up after the break, the growing number of family physicians planning to close up for good. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. For a closer look at the constitutional court challenge against the law mandating Ontario hospitals to charge patients who won't go to nursing homes $400 a day, Libby spoke with Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition. Well, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects Section 7, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Um, and so we're saying that this law um, abrogates those rights. Um, for the frail elderly who will be forced out of hospital into these homes that may be far away from their families um, and loved ones that are homes not of their choosing where, you know, they have poor reputations and for inadequate care and so on. Um, and then Section 15, which is the um, 
the the equality rights section, the, the section that says that you have the right not to be discriminated against based on things like age. Uh, and we're saying this is ageist. They are the only people being targeted. The frail elderly in hospitals waiting for long-term care are the only patient group being targeted to have their right to consent uh, wiped out um, and to be forced into places not of their choosing, um, violating their right to informed consent. One of our panelists was reading the language in the legislation, and what it says is that hospital staff can research what homes are available without the consent of the patient, but the legislation says that they cannot force people there. So what they were wondering is, uh, given that that's what the legislation says, is there any chance that a challenge could be successful before there's some kind of instances of abuse? Yeah, what the what the legislation actually says is that um, the patient can um, be assessed without their consent. They can have their um, personal health information shared with an array of providers without their consent. They can have their paperwork filled in without their consent, and be admitted to a long term care home not of their choosing without their without their consent. So um, that is absolutely clear in the legislation. Our, our co-applicants with us in the Charter Challenge is the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, a legal clinic staffed with lawyers. We have assessed this. Our lawyers have assessed this. That is what the legislation says. Have you heard of cases of people being moved to a place they really don't want to go to? Yeah, you know what? We have. And like... We had this before this bill was brought in, but before this bill was brought in, then, you know, I could call the hospital or, or someone from the Advocacy Center for the Elderly and we could say, you can't do this. And we challenge them. And then, you know, the problem would disappear. They would, they would back off. Now with this legislation, um, they're going to require people. It says in, in the, in the regulations and in, uh, yeah, in the regulations that the hospitals are required to charge $400 a day. That takes away any discretion. And I sort of give the hospital an excuse to, you know, if there's a lot of pressure from a family or what have you. Um, and, uh, so we, I mean, we have heard of it. We heard before the bill even passed from people who said that they were using the bill, the $400 a day as a threat. Um, to uh, push people out. And most people acquiesced because, of course, they can't afford the $400 a day. And so they acquiesce and they go. They don't really have recourse. These are, as you know, you know, these are elderly people in the last months of their lives and they're human beings. And in our view, their rights to care, like their lives are valuable. They don't have less right to care than other people. And so on principle, we have to challenge this. Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, which is joined by the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly in the Constitutional Challenge. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Kompsik for Jane Brown. As if there weren't already enough problems in our health system, there are already 1.8 million Ontarians who don't have a family doctor, but... A recently published survey finds nearly 20% plan to close their practices within the next five years. Nearly 4% in that group said they plan to close in the next 12 months. 
Libby caught up with Dr. Elisa Naiman, a family physician with the Medical Station Clinic in Toronto, as well as Dr. Sohail Gandhi, a family physician and past president of the Ontario Medical Association. I'm not surprised by the numbers given what I'm seeing uh, amongst my own colleagues. Uh, I am going to, however, call out one comment that we really need to put a stop to simply because it's utterly and completely false. And that's the statement that family physicians are not seeing people in person. Uh, you know, I was with the Ontario Medical Association. I was privy to confidential OHIP billing data. I can tell you right now, 97% of all family physicians see people in a mix of virtual and in person. Two and a half percent of family physicians retired over COVID. So that explains the other two. So we're talking about less than half a percent of all family physicians. So let's put an end to this total misrepresentation and complete fraudulent claim that family physicians don't see patients in person uh, as a general rule. Okay, it's a very small number. With respect to um, why people are getting tired and are considering retiring, I think what we're seeing is a culmination of decades of mismanagement of the healthcare system. I mean, it's fashionable to, bl- uh, to blame COVID, but uh, I've been on your show for a number of years now, and, and you know, I was expressing concern about family medicine five, six, seven years ago. Dr. Nadia Lam has been on your show a number of times. I know you know her quite well. She's been saying the same thing for seven or eight years. Dr. Kimala Premji has been saying this for 10 years. So uh, people have been saying that there's a crisis coming for a number of years. They were ignored. And then COVID came and just exacerbated the crisis. And that's that's unfortunately what we're dealing with right now. Well, I can tell you that in our office that uh, we encourage all patients to come for in-person appointments. And we actually have a problem when people want to have a virtual appointment when that doesn't meet the standard of care and a physical exam is required and people just don't want to come in. So we're having a problem of not being able to have people come in. Um, I agree with um, the statement about that it's inflammatory about what the Minister of Health said last week. She basically places the blame for what's happening with the excess weight in the in emerge on family family doctors. And I can tell you that here in our office, we are seeing a ton of kids that are sick. We are seeing adults who are sick. Uh, we're doing our best to try to make sure that people don't go to the hospital and. Family medicine is in crisis, and to have these inflammatory remarks by the Minister of Health was very, very upsetting. The bottom line is is that uh, the situation for for family medicine will be getting worse as more doctors retire and the older doctors work longer hours than the newer doctors, and people better hold on to their family doctor that they have and better hope that their family doctor doesn't retire or switch uh, their practice type, because it will be very difficult to find another family physician. Dr. Elisa Naiman, a family physician with a medical station clinic in Toronto, and Dr. Sohail Gandhi, family physician and a past president of the Ontario Medical Association. I'm Bob Komsik, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. With Christmas not that far off, just wondering, will there be a tree to place your presents under? Tree farmers are urging you to get yours early as there are significant countrywide inventory shortages, meaning they're more expensive. Libby spoke with Shirley Brennan, Executive Director, Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario. When we talk about shortage, we have been seeing that there has been um, fewer trees available for certain species. So we've been dealing with that for about four years. 
So when we first started looking at it, our industry went in Canada from a $53 million industry in 2015 to a $100 million industry in 2020. We could not have predicted that rate of increase. We usually see about a 15% increase. So having that huge increase um, certainly did play a role in it. Part of that was the pandemic in 2020. People really wanted to get out and do things um, as a family. And uh, so they embraced coming out to farms and getting um, a real treat. The other thing that we're noticing, so we really started looking at this, is this just demand or what's going on? And Stats Can report from 2011 to, and then the one that came out in 2021 shows us that we lost 20,000 acres of potential Christmas tree farms um, over the last 10 years. So that's equivalent to 30 million trees. So that plays into it as well. Would you have expected that uh, since the pandemic, it's not going to be the same uh, this holiday? I'm not going to say it's over because it's rising. Would you (laughs) expect that the demand would go back down a little bit? Uh, You know what? Our our, um, farms and and growers are expecting that we're going to see the same sort of crowds that we saw last year. Some Farmers that opened last last weekend had great opening days. Uh, we also know that Mother Nature um, has affected us as well. So, you know, people came out in the beautiful weather. Um, some people will wait until the weather turns so that it looks more like Christmas, like it, it is now starting to. Um, and, and farms across Ontario and across Canada have delayed some have delayed opening some have opened earlier so that we're trying to accommodate all consumers people are being encouraged to get the tree early so if you get a tree early and you take care of it water it every day how long will it last will it still be in good shape at christmas for sure so if you're getting a tree now there's a couple of things you can do and i'm not necessarily telling everyone to run out and get trees right away right Because we do have, over the last three years that we have been dealing with this so-called shortage, and I say that because my office has only received one or two phone calls saying that, hey, I I wasn't able to find a tree, or can you help me find a tree? So there are trees out there in different species. But what happens is, if you're going to go and get it now, um, some people will, will leave it in controlled temperatures, whether it's in an unheated garage, whether it's out beside the house, but it's sheltered before they bring it into the house. But if you're going to bring it into the house, you're going to make a fresh cut on it. You're going to put it in water and you're going to water it all the time. Water is the key to keeping your Christmas tree uh, fresh and, and healthy throughout the Christmas season, regardless of when you put it up. Shirley Brennan, Executive Director of Christmas Tree Farmers of Ontario. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. 
Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Sharon in Aurelia called to share an experience with hospital fees. My husband has been in the hospital since July. He's still in the hospital. He's had both of his legs removed at the knee. Oh, no. And he has bed sores that are being attended to. The hospital is doing a good job, but the billing department wants to charge us $54.89 a day, which comes to $1,647.70 for November. But is it, what's the reason? Because he, he is he considered? They need him out of the hospital, but okay. he can't come home because the house is too small. He has no legs. Daryl in Toronto's not a fan of the new strong mayor powers. I just wanted to, you know, to me this is crazy. It's, it's almost a shame the notwithstanding clause. And these things are going to be, you know, very, very bad, especially if we have the wrong people in the office or using them. I mean, try and imagine if Rob Ford came by and had these powers. Uh, I mean, it'd be a total zoo and a circus. And I think, I think that the, the mayor and also in terms of the notwithstanding trial, there needs to be a body, an independent body that reviews any of these things and has to certify them as viable, left up to whoever is in power. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, Pat in Toronto, who also weighed in on the new mayoral powers. I'm very concerned uh, with all of this. I don't have a problem with Mayor Tory having this power, but I don't want it to be a general power out there for anybody who has elected the mayor. It's just wrong. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackzoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby, and call our Fightback voicemail anytime, 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Kompsik for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.